I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is the Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing culture and life, past, present, and future. Let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, from mug yachts to tugboats to ice boats, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Captain Scott Todson. Hey, hi Todd, how are you doing? Um, we've got some lovely weather down here in the marina. A little bit of a 10 to 15 knot breeze uh, coming from the north, and it looks like it's going to reach 70 today for about four minutes. Um, I think people who don't live in Southern California, they look and they go, oh, you know, it's 70 degrees there, and they think it's like summer, 70 degrees all day, but in fact, as you know, and uh, the people in Southern California know that it'll only be 70 degrees for about four minutes, and then it'll go back down and <laughs> stay in the 60s. So this is our spring slash winter. So, But everything's good down here. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that there's a huge difference in temperature between during the daytime and at nighttime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's desert. It's desert. That's what it is. It's yeah, exactly. Desert. It gets really cold at cold at night. Like mm-hmm. if you've ever been out in the desert, you know it's warm during the day, but at night it gets really cold. Well, really that's quickly. yeah. Los Angeles and all from Los Angeles all the way down to San Diego and stuff is it's all desert really, um, but uh, it's a desert climate. So yeah. So what do we have planned for today's episode? Well, today, as I have teased, I'm going to be talking about the Zen and sailing. And um, if you are kind of have a phys- philosophical bent about things, I talk about uh, some ancient ideas uh, that come from the philosophy of the Greeks. And um, I meld all those together with a few really wonderful stories about sailing and how the extremes of one mi- side of the mind and extremes of the other side of the mind can be brought together into a very happy place. And sometimes we call that Zen. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Welcome to our 52nd episode of Offshore Explorer with Scott Dodgson. One year of telling stories about traveling the world on boats. Boarding a sailboat and voyaging over the horizon requires, in my mind, a balance of two philosophical tenets. The truth and the good. Another way to describe the tenets as the far ends of a lever between a fulcrum, a fulcrum being the moral, physical, and emotional, and truth being on one end, the good being on the other end, and trying to find a balance between the two. A sailing life is about trying to find the correspondence between the rational and irrational, or the practical and the romantic. And I don't mean romantic in terms of of love. The method of melding these tenets together is found in the practice of Zen. Sometimes it's apparent and sometimes it's not. The Zen of sailing is simple 
and it is complex. It is natural and it is fabricated. It requires different skills to think critically and to not think deliberately at all. You are a processor of natural environment, of wind, of sea, of current. You're a processor. But you can't think about it because it's too much information. You can analyze it. You could break it down in your gauges. You could do all sorts of things. Mathematically look at it. But you know what? The skill of really sailing a sailboat fast is in processing it naturally. I was invited to join a crew on a Wednesday evening uh, beer can race. My host was a successful account, accountant, and he was a brilliant mathematician from what I understand. And he was very determined to win the races. He owned a Beneteau First 40, a very fast one-design boat, as many of you know. And a couple of the J... 122s were owned by his friends and they matched favorably in both the uh, IRC and the ORCI. So there was only like three seconds per meter or something like that given away. <clears throat> so he, he, could, he could feasibly win pretty comfortably um, if the boat uh, sailed fast. So he had met me and he'd asked me to come down and help him sail faster. And from what I was told, he was a tyrant and he wouldn't listen. But I went down, you know, looked around the boat and everything. And, you know, I could see that he, you know, got his, got rid of as much weight in the boat as possible. And, and he really kind of got her slimmed down and his setup looked okay. And, you know, I was, I was satisfied with the boat itself. Technically it was, it was fine. It was good. All right. But the crew... The crew was walking on eggshells. They were hesitant. Um, they were afraid of making mistakes. And in my evaluation, when I go onto a boat and somebody says, hey, yeah, help me go faster in a race, you know, I'm looking both technically at the boat. I'm looking at the crew. You know, do they know their jobs? Will they do their job without hesitation? Because even though time-wise sailboats were slow compared to other uh, vehicles, um, you know, just screwing up attack can really lose your race. So the crew has to kind of know what they're doing and they have to be confident. Okay. But this guy, the owner, he bellowed and berated over the simplest miscue. He yelled at this poor woman, almost brought her to tears, um, for not tightening the jib. What he didn't realize is every time he was watching the jib and yelling at her, he sailed out of the adjustment. He was off course. Another thing he did was watch the gauges. There was no doubt he had a brilliant mathematical mind. And, and for our discussion, I'll call it his truth. And on that fulcrum, he was way over on the end of the lever on the truth. And his motto in life is numbers don't lie. When I point out that the numbers and degrees he was adjusting the helm to was actually delayed, 
And in the simple truth, vaguely accurate, at the time it was read. In other words, he was driving by what had already happened, not what was happening or what will happen. So literally, you could move across the lever, across the fulcrum to get to what will happen. That's on the romantic side. What was happening is the balance in between. And where he was sailing, what had already happened. In his rational mind, he nearly blew up in front of me. It was like I just gave him a fact that he could not process. He was on overload, and his little computer mind just crashed. He was going to buy new gauges. That was his first instinct. I'm going to buy new gauges that could be faster, and they could tell me exactly, exactly when exactly, and maybe I can you know, get it down to a nanosecond. I'll talk to my computer guy. And he went on and on and on. I said, dude, I told him that I thought he should try to feel the sea. I pointed out, on every roll of the wave or swell under his rudder, he needed to compensate ever so slightly as not to create more drag than necessary. He was impatient with my advice. I sensed this and I decided to be quiet. He quickly became angry and he became very frustrated. He couldn't keep the boat on course. Sales were luffing in, the sales were, you know, trim, luffed out. He was go back and forth. It was like a pendulum going across the course line. I told him he was his own worst enemy. And I said, let me show you. And he said, he said you're a f- fucking smart ass. I should have never had you on the boat. And he went below, leaving the helm in my hands. We were averaging 6.2 knots. The only thing I could do now was, because I was being paid to be there, was to sail faster. So I sat on the windward side of the helm so that I could feel the wind in my face. I compared what I felt and what I heard. The sound of the wind in my ears changes tone. If your nose is sort of dead center to the wind, both ears have a tone in it. If it's just off a few degrees, um, the, the port ear will not hear anything in the starboard ear will hear the wind blow. And that's how you can just intuitively build that into your, just build that into your knowledge of stuff that's going on around you and a feel that you need to have when you're sailing the boat. And in fact, I'm actually hard of hearing right now um, in a certain tonal range because of the years I've spent sailing which has been most of my life. So from my position, I could see the wave and the swell quartering under the hull, creating a corkscrew motion in the boat. Rolling over the swell needed one smooth rudder placement, but going down, I relieved the pressure of the rudder, creating less drag and pointing the bow into the swell with the smoothness of 8.2 knots. It was that simple. If you look off your stern 
and you see that white line that's in the water. And sometimes it's wonderful at night when the plankton is glowing and you could see this green swirl going off into the distance. That's the turbulence that's coming off your rudder. The lower the turbulence, the faster you're going to go. So that means that, and you could see it, if, if, if that line kind of goes to the right or goes to the left, you've got too much rudder. Okay, if it goes out straight, you have exactly the right balance. Because then you have equality on both sides of the rudder, which gives you as much speed as you possibly could get. There's an old uh, adage, a sail trim adage. Trim the front of the jib and the back of the mainsail. If you pretty much remember that, you'll be able to trim any sail or any boat set of sails. I took some of the pressure off the backstay to straighten up the mast a bit. He had had fractured rig, and he had it done. He had it pulled so tight that that the the mast was like a pretzel. So we eased that up, and I moved the sweet spot. Now, what I call as the sweet spot is there's a little power spot in every sail that, regardless of if they're all built the same, the cells are all the same, each one will be a slightly different based on where that sweet spot is. Because you have to remember, the wind is not pushing you as much as it's giving you lift. And it's an airplane term, but it's giving you lift. This is why the Marconi rig works so well, because you're creating slots of wind like the wind going over an airfoil or going over a uh, airplane wing. So if you get a little bulge in the center of a normal sail, I'm not talking about, you know, your really stiff mylar, Kevlar, whatever lar you want sail that's very, very stiff. That's a different sort of approach to the concept. But if you're using regular Dacron kind of sails, this is a this is what's going to happen is you're going to get a little bulge where that bulge is where it fits is 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 very important to how to fly your jib and how to coordinate between that bulge on your mainsail and the bulge that's also on your jib so that if you line them up you're going to create a faster flow of air and a faster flow of air creates more pressure. More pressure between the sails creates more speed. Now that's the technical part of it. In order to get it to where you want by looking at the telltales and, 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 and looking at, at the way the, the boat is moving and how the sails uh, react to waves and swell, that's the art part. That's the art part totally that's the romantic as we say in our two our two frameworks our two tenets so i i let the back stay out a little bit the mast straightened up a little bit and the sweep spot moved up from the foot where it was actually spilling off of the um the boom itself 
now the wind wasn't pouring off the foot and it was redirected so it would flow straighter creating a longer and more intense uh, pressure gradient across the mainsail next i moved the car sheet back a couple of positions the foot stop the foot of the jib stopped shivering and the sweet spot had moved up into the center of the jib's triangle which is always a great place to have it this helped with the power but it also helped create a more defined direction of wind behind the mainsail so like uh, the twin wings on an airplane it created lift and only the vertical you know vertical lift and at this point once it was lined up we were at 9.9 knots the owner could hear the results he popped up in the companionway and looked around his crew was smiling we were going fast i was steering with one finger he asked how did i do it i told him that he should come and feel the boat sit next to me and shut your eyes he did it I said, what do you feel? He just sat there for a few minutes. And I said, put your hand on the helm. Don't steer, just put your hand. Feel, feel what's going through your boat. Feel what's in the rudder. And I was making the changes. And I didn't have to make very many changes. I had it set so it could literally sail by itself. And then he said, yes. This is what I was missing. I was like the modern day Master Poe. Yes, grasshopper. This is what it is about. It's both technical, but it's feeling. And it's the blend of both. The owner struggled for a little bit, but he eventually got the hang of it. And a few weeks later, a month later, I think, uh, a couple of his... Uh, Regular crew members stopped me and thanked me on the dock and offered to buy me a beer and said they really appreciated my help because now they were winning races and they were a little bit happier. What I did was somewhat technical in terms of finding the right trim for the sails, but mostly I felt the boat underneath me. I was attempting to reduce the drag from the rudder and let the boat be a part of the sea. You know, the sea is going to do what it's going to do. You're just, you're just bobbing on that thing. The rest of the thousands of little changes and adjustments, I never thought about or noted. And it took a long time for the owner to figure out that there were tons and tons of changes that he had to figure out exactly when to adjust the rudder, exactly when to, you know, allow the rudder to not bite into the ocean and let it slide by you know where to kind of point your bow coming up to a wave that maybe is in front of you or coming towards you you know how to set your stern so that when you go down a swell that you won't broach or or you know get knocked down and go off course it, even the smallest the smallest of wave like that can teach you to to handle even big waves 
So it's a it's an important it's an important thing. But those changes, I couldn't tell him what it was. And basically, this was, you know, this was my romantic side that held that feeling in like what I call softly cupping hands. That's that's how I sail a boat. Now I've sailed with sailors that uh, that are just pure technical sailors. They're very good at technical sailing. Um, and I've sailed with guys that uh, would know the difference between um, a knot on the ocean and a knot in a tree, but they were just fast. Comes from sailing a lot of small boats too, little dinghy sailors. You can really pick up what you need to do because it's the terrain proportionally is much more difficult. It's much more steep. You know, it's steeper in, in, in a 14-foot boat than it is in a 40-foot boat. So these are all learning lessons that you sort of process, and it all comes into your head. And it, as, I, as I go on, I'll, I'll explain what I'm kind of drawing into here. It's the, 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 the difference between, you know, technical thinking, rational thinking, the truth, and the romanticism on the, the other truth. My stories are told with uh, sailing adventures as kind of mind samples. And the adventures themselves as observations that can be, I hope, valuably transferred or be transferable to your life as they have been to my life. I've had over 60 years of hardcore sailing and writing and thinking most uh, important skills I've had have been my ability to be open, intuitive, curious, uncomfortable, carefully reckless, and to think seriously. I want to see the edges. I want to, to know what the edges of things are. And I'm not going to be satisfied with just what's in front of me. I want to see what's behind it. So I see edges of things that other people don't. But I worry as I get older if I will become more set in my ways. There's always a repetition, and that's a good thing. Reaching a Zen state sometimes requires repetition of a single task. Um, you'll see, you know, doing bells and lighting candles and chanting and all the rest. This is a process, a physical manifestation to get your mind psychologically in the proper um, orientation. Think like raking sand in the rock garden. So it is the iconoclastic view that worries me. I see it. I am hyper aware of it. I talk to lots of people, and most are very uninteresting. And I will say that again. I talk to lots of people, and most are not interesting at all. You must understand that iconoclastic views are, to me, a declaration of, I'll be dead soon. I have stopped learning. If you stop learning, and you don't pursue and work hard at your mind and doing something 
whatever it is, reading books, working on new projects, doing whatever, but you're constantly striving to learn new things, you're going to die. So I've settled for a version, you know, I, I don't want to settle for a version of a narrative that suits me for my, for being comfortable, you know. I, I don't want to settle for what I think the world is. The world evolves. People evolve. Ideas evolve. Understanding life takes constant work. Rebuilding is constant. Questioning yourself about the very basic ideas that you have. Reevaluating is ever present. If you stop, you lose the thread of your narrative. And I find it impossible not to investigate life with thinking, with my being, with urgent discovery, with the energy of the universe. And the boat is my medium. The sea demands. The ocean calls, the wind howls. I have always urged family and friends to travel. Take a year off, go to Europe. I never had that opportunity because my travel plans were made by Uncle Sam, and his tropical destination was Vietnam. Were I to venture to say where I well venture to say I learned more about life, politics, psychology than most 21-year-olds at that point. And when contemplating the concepts of truths and good and the named mechanism of Zen, becoming balanced with those concepts, is a lifelong process. I'll say it again, it's a lifelong process. You're always in a journey. You're always either good on one side or bad on the other side. Switches around, keeps pushing. If you settle on one side, you won't have a fulfilled or whole, wholesome type of psychological life. And you won't be a very good sailor. You know, it's, there's no easy fix to this. Um, there are no experts. Maybe there's an occasional master who can impart certain tools and skills to help in the process. But basically, you have to have the awareness of the work and it must be constantly prodded into the forefront of your thinking you can't let modern day life suck it up the start of my journey was in the fall of 1973 in Laos in a very hostile political environment for an American soldier. But it was so stunningly beautiful for the romantic, the good, the moral verte, overwhelmed the truth, the technical. I could come under fierce attack at any moment. Bullets, bombs, knives and I would have been lucky to survive and I was lucky to survive but at this moment I was having a pleasant conversation 
in the middle of a war zone, in the middle of a place that is so beautiful it takes your breath away, you can't believe it, with a scent in the air that is just so, so... It, you, when you smell it, you know this is an aphrodisiac. So I was having this pleasant conversation with a Buddhist monk next to the Nam Song River in Laos. Van Vieng is one of the most wondrous places on earth. You look it up, V-A-N-G, V-I-E-N-G. It is phenomenal. And the monk was in his 50s. I was 21. I was dressed in my imposing American military uniform. M16 slung under my arm, 45 on my hip. And I was asking in a stern voice about troop movements. I was going through the motions because I knew he knew he wasn't going to say anything. Instead, we talked by the edge of the river as different as one or the other could be. I was the truth, our projected violence, technology. I was the embodiment of the whole representative modern world of rational thought, political power, military power, and an uncommon sense of righteousness. He was ethereal. He was one with the beauty of his life. The beauty of the surroundings only enhanced the flow through him and around him. And it was as if we were talking to the river directly through this bald-headed little man in a bright yellow robe. Even the sun was in his obeyance. His countenance, like the river, flowed gently. The sound of the river, the insects buzzing around, played in my head. That fear I carried, attempted to control, repressed, roared like a furnace in my head. It fell silent because of this man's goodness. I leaned down and took a cup, hand cupping the water, and smelled it. He watched me. I knew there was a large body of troops somewhere close by. The pea and fecal material from a brigade force would continue to foul river for some distance. And the monk asked me if I knew the river. And he squatted and took a sip of the water from his cupped hands. He showed me, or tried to show me, I was wrong about the troops. Then he said, we are all our own rivers on the journey from the mountain to the sea. We have met at a different time in our journeys, and he wished I would make it safely to the sea. He supped the water from his hands and walked away, continuing his journey. On the surface, we call life 
as kind of like a different intersection, different forks in the river, streams and creeks joining the flow of the river, swamps where the river has decided to rest. If we attempt, and we are thoughtful and strident people to do our best, the idea of the journey will immediately be imitated and you'll recover or find that kind of zen-like feeling. I was there and I'm not, I was not there. I was on a journey that intersected with an old monk who served his people, they were my enemy, himself, not to be accused of being a traitor, and me, the one whose river was heading to the sea in the very distant future. That idea created a lifelong pursuit of becoming nothing and something at once. I went from a life completely engaged by fact and rational thought, just like the owner of the Beneteau 40. I, I was doing life by the gauges. I was, that's what I was doing. I was totally into the gauges. And every time I wanted to adjust the sail, I threw myself off a course. I trusted that only rational truths would move me forward. And the monk showed me a path to balance. And I didn't really become aware until much later. I left the service with the sole purpose of closing that door. And it's been, I think, 47 years since the meeting by the river. And today, as I write this for the first time, I've had a thought about that day. It was profoundly influencing, you know, like, um, like the drift of a current on a dead, calm day. A river of sorts slowly moving along and with me in it. But life is not in a stasis. A sailor always has the benefit of current, tide, and wind to show him the way of his voyage. And I tell the story to make you aware that there is a scale, that the needle bounces back and forth across the hyper-rational and the ethereal. I was the hyper-rational, the monk was the ethereal. And somewhere in between there, there's a balance for me as there was hopefully for him. So when you're sailing, cruising, traveling, learning is best achieved when there is a balance. I've been a writer and a storyteller for film and theater for a long time. I have a lot of productions under my belt. And on balance, I have probably made more money writing feature films and TV than I did than I ever did making uh, charters or, or being a mega yacht captain. Although the value of cruising around the world and running my own charter business is immense, in my book, money is an unimportant measurement of life and success. As I rarely think about money or, you know, I, I'm very bad about that, um, but money lies in that category of truth. And sometimes I have to be reminded, because I spend so much time being creative, that I have to be practical. I have to have the truth 
So I have to balance the checkbook. I have to pay attention to these things. So I use this word truth more as the way the Greeks used it. Um, they applied a philosophical, um, it was philosophical reasoning, basically what it was. Truth was something like a science fact. And money is an accounting value, which falls into the notion of truth as, you know, mathematics, you know, shows a particular calculation of the truth. It is not the wholeness of one's presence in the world. The deposits in my bank are quality experiences and knowledge. And if you look at the USCG captain's license, it is primarily based on experience. Days at sea. The remainder of the exam to be get a captain's license is essentially technical, like navigation, safety, first aid, etc. But what is really the most important and the most established fact is that experience weighs more than technical knowledge. The tally being a melange of nuances between truth and good, good in this sense being the romantic view and, and or interpretation of life, so please don't assume that this romantic means like, you know, hearts and unicorns and rainbows. And I have tried to find a balance between the truth and the good in my life and my writing. And that's why a lot of these podcasts all have that little metaphor that I have taken the practical truth and put the goodness to it. So here I am using two ancient views from Greek philosophers, essentially looking at the world and one's mind between the technical and the romantic. Pure truths or, technocrat or technocrats wet dreams. There are many sailors who dwell solely in this way of thinking. And I have spoken on several podcasts like The Rudder, Struck by Lightning and Protocol that are necessarily uh, technical but I've tried to draw a larger meaning by adding stories that relate to an insight from that technicality. More often than not, um, I get criticism from the pure truth thinkers about inane references. Um, sometimes I'm not saying something as correctly as I could. You know, I'm not saying that they were wrong. They were, you know, or I was right. Uh, most of the times. Um, I, it was just that I wasn't clear as I had hoped. And, but oftentimes people miss the point. They lay bare their philosophy of thought. Tech is pure truth. Provable. Not really. I can hear the sphincters tightening in the defense of technology. Sailing rises. And it's just, it's like a shrill fart to me. Listening to technical guys, you know, break down the fact that you mini volts are not the right or you misspoke on the gauge of wire and you had to be corrected. If that's what you think, you've missed the point. I have alluded to the modern pursuit of pure truths. And, and I've been trying to establish the concept of truth in the opposition to the force of good. Rational thought 
may find truth. It may never fully or universally um, be applicable to the individual's experience, but it exists. And that approach to that life gives you a kind of wider range of application. Originally, the Greeks did not distinguish between quality and truth. They were sort of all the same. Moral virtue is really what they were talking about. And moral virtue is really something interesting that as a concept and and as something when you're sailing and cruising, if you're going to sail and cruise and you're going to stay in your boat when you get to a port and you're not going to engage with people or discover what's on land when you get there, then you're really not cruising. It's all about getting in the river. Go swim in the river. So I think sailing force is a balance. I think that that there's a technical part of sailing, um, but the art of the sailor, the art of sailing, the art of being a sailor, is in itself a moral virtue. It's, it's more unique than any occupation, lifestyle, or human endeavor that I know of. Because the ocean demands a fluid perception of the sailor's physical and emotional life. There's something going on when you're on a boat that you physically cannot stop. And your mind will follow. And this is the kind of thing that happens when one achieves the Zen of sailing. The sailor aims towards a perception of the world that embraces both sides of the rational and romantic. And it means that things like his captain's license are weighted between wisdom and experience and science and reason. And if you get unbalanced in any one of those directions, you're not going to be successful. And it also includes that there can be bursts of creativity and intuition and, and your view will change. And the sailor seeks to demonstrate that rationality, that Zen-like being in the moment can be both harmonious to his own soul and his own moral truth. And it's also a part of where nature is. So there's that fitting in, that balance of fitting into the nature of what it is that a sailor is. So this entire podcast series has been about bringing to bear the course to a, a better life and a better sailing life. And if, if you haven't, if you're not a sailor and you're just listening to this and you're taking it in as a sort of Zen of sailing um, situation, uh, this is this is this is what we get from being a sailor, and it's something you can achieve. I like to think sometimes that you know writers, no matter their skill level, can gain from this advice. And there's certain things that you've got to be aware of that will kind of hurt the process. And um, there's a thing called uh, the gumption traps. Uh, Persig is a um, a psychologist wrote that uh, gumption traps or setbacks, which arise from both external and from hangups, um, which is a product of in, internal factors. 
such as a poor fit between one's psychological state and the requirements of a project. Um, if you can't be alone or you're not leading yourself in a life, and let me repeat that, if you're not leading yourself in a life, it is time for an overhaul. Your project will never be successful. I see a lot of people buy boats and they're not up to the project. And they're not up to the project because they haven't been leading their life. They're, they're looking for something to escape from rather than escape to. And there's an old saying in the yachting business that when your owner of, the, of your yacht takes up golf, start looking for another job. Because this boat project in his mind is finished. There are setbacks. And the nature of setbacks can vary considerably. For example, a minor setback might be the result of a, a minor injury. Larger setbacks might include the lack of knowledge of a certain procedural step. Um, it's like uh, I'm going to varnish my boat and not quite figuring out how to work varnish. So there's a lot of things that, despite the lack of knowledge, that you can overcome, okay? And there's a lot of people that try to deal with it, and in the, their lack of progress may prompt, like, taking longer breaks from a project or to focus one's attentions on other endeavors or to even lose interest in the project altogether. And quite frankly, you can go to any marina anywhere in the world and you'll see tons of boats that are there being... Um, being absent, being left because the owners have lost their way. And I'll, I'll point out an example. I used to make lists, a lot of lists on my boat. And it would, you know, I would have all these lists would be like for repairs and maintenance of my boat. And one time I, I, I started with a generator that was old and raggedy. I needed to replace it. So I started to fashion a plan on how I was going to get the old generator out, the new one in. I was in the Caribbean. I spent most of my time at anchor, but I would have to go to the shipyard. I'd have to have their help. Where was I going to dispose of the old one? Because the shipyard didn't want anything, didn't want anything to do with it. They didn't want to touch it after I hauled it out. Um, how was I going to get the new one in? Should I clean and paint the bilge? Of course. Um, should I build a new platform for the pan to rest on? It's going to take another day or so to be in the in the marina. Uh, or in the boatyard, um, should I consider rewiring this section of the boat because, you know, now my 110 is going to be a lot stronger and, you know, these wires are old and probably would be a good, good idea to go ahead and put in good electricity, good wires, fresh, ready to travel. You know, what about the new battery cables? Should I put new battery cables? Should I change the diameter of the batteries, battery cables, so that, you know, there's a more free flow of, uh, of electricity? And each one of these little ideas has tons of literature on what it should be and what, it, what you should do this and why you shouldn't do that. And then there's everybody else has got a, a freaking opinion about what it is that you have to do. So I went on for about five or six big projects in front of the one project that I wanted to do. I was insane with detail. I was so caught up. I ended up replacing a fuel tank 
because I had to cut the floor to get it out. And there was no use in replacing the wire until I had done this. Thus, the generator had to wait. And then there was putting in the new water maker. It was endless. So I kept creating projects to not do the generator. So these are the kinds of hangups you can have to start on one, th one project and you keep going to other projects, you know, and you develop this anxiety and then you get bored with those projects. And then you get impatient because, well, you're not getting them done. And then, you know, it's just one thing after another thing and it reduces your, your focus on getting things done the way they should be done. Now, I also think of that when I'm on the boat and I'm working on this, and this is a part of the Zen of sailing kind of concept, okay? Because the boat and working on the boat is a part of how you achieve that sort of Zen feeling. I mean, there's nothing like really getting into a groove when you're, you know, stripping varnish or doing varnish or, or you're painting or you're doing some mechanical work on your engine or whatever the case may be. A friend of mine, he was so obsessed with installing a washer and dryer in his boat because his wife had suggested it and he wanted to appease her so badly because he wanted to take her sailing and she was a bit hesitant. He ended up being delayed for two years, just taking the boat out for a Just He spent two years at the dock. He never took the boat out for a sail. All because of a washer and dryer installation because he thought his wife wouldn't go sailing without a washer and dryer. It's crazy. So I want to say thank you very much for listening to a year's worth of podcasts. We look forward to bringing you another year um, of storytelling. And hopefully we can continue to find stories and people that will tell the truth, be the truth, and be the good. And we can hopefully will enhance your sailing life and your life as we go along. And maybe you'll pick up a little bit of Zen action as we go along. But in any case, um, thank you very much. And we look forward to your comments and um, safe sailing. Thanks for sharing, Scott. That was an uh, interesting perspective on sailing. It kind of reminds me of, of when, you know, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance was a was a popular book for a while there in the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, I imagine you probably have a lot of time just alone by yourself in your head while you're sailing across the ocean. Like, what what's that like? Oh, that's a that's really a good question. Um, that's a deep question. Um, it's, I think what it is, is you, you have a couple of different levels as I, as I discussed, is that you, you spend a lot of time doing technical stuff like, okay, let's navigate, um, you know, how much fuel do I have left? Um, where's the charge of my battery? Um, how much water do I have left? Um, you know, all these little sort of, um, 
addition and subtraction problems that you go through. You know, there's the, should I change sails or what's the weather going to be like? What's the weather pattern? What's it look like? How's it feel? But after you finish all of that, there is just the sort of uh, melding with the nature, with the ocean and the role and the physicalness of it. And I think you just sort of unintentionally stop thinking about things, so to speak, and you just are in the moment. And I think that's one of the great pleasures of long-distance sailing. And I imagine, you know, at least when people are starting to, to go out sailing, especially going to sail offshore, is there like a moment of, of for want of a better word, oh shit, right? When mm -hmm. you can no longer see the shore mm -hmm. and you're in open ocean. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When, when it's horizon, horizon, all the horizons are water and the boat is going, it, there is, there's a wonderful feeling that, that comes across to you. And maybe one of the best ways you could describe it is in music, right? Um, I always felt that the only music that was even close to the feeling that you get being in the middle of the ocean was opera and opera, you know, and rock and roll uh, and, and blues and all the rest of that's fine. Um, but it seems a little wanting when you get out into something so glorious and so big and so monstrous. Um, and that music of, uh, of, uh, of Beethoven and Mozart and Liz and all those guys, that's, that's kind of the feeling you get. Yeah. So I just want to shout out and thank everybody who's listening. Our next, uh, this episode is, this episode is our 52nd episode. Um, it's one year of episodes, and we thank you for joining us on this journey, on this great voyage. And we look forward to having you listen to us um, for the next year and the next 52 episodes. Thank you. Safe sailing, safe seas. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. <laughs>